Chapter Twenty One of Quiet Hints to Growing Preachers in My Study. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Quiet Hints to Growing Preachers in My Study by Charles Edward Jefferson. Chapter Twenty One Mannerisms. Every man must have a manner, and when the manner is peculiar to himself, it becomes a mannerism. Not every mannerism is offensive. There are tricks of gesture and of speech which, because of their very oddity, have a pleasing fascination, and seem to be a fitting and completing part of a man's own personality. They give us, in fuller measure, the aroma of his soul. But mannerisms, as a rule, are veritable dragons, which, throwing themselves between the preacher and his hearers, must be warred against and slain. Eternal vigilance is the price the man of God must pay for deliverance from this plague of pulpit pests. There is scarcely an organ of the body which will not enter into conspiracy to cripple the minister in his work. His eyes may roam above his hearer's head, or dart periodically toward the floor, or hang themselves to a peg in one corner of the room, or shut themselves up as if afraid of the light, or stare steadfastly into vacancy like the eyes of Macbeth on beholding the dagger, refusing to do what all sane eyes are intended to do, look an audience in the face. His nose, if unregenerate, may sniff and snort, punctuating the glad tidings of great joy with indescribable sounds which are hardly fit for music for the house of the Lord. His face may break loose from all restraint and indulge in grimaces wonderful to see. It may look solemn as death when there is no reason for solemnity, and wrathful when there is no call for indignation, and amused when there is no justification for mirth, and it may twist itself into contortions, which, if reproduced by the kinetoscope, would furnish interesting diversion for the ungodly. Or his entire head may become unmanageable, wagging and wobbling, jerking and bobbing, as though ideas are nails which must be driven in by the skull used as a mallet. The hands also may become unruly, cutting capers behind their owner's back fumbling and twitching, grasping and groping, expending nervous energy which ought to be poured into the voice. Or bolder in action, they may gambol incessantly before the eyes of the congregation, doubling themselves into fists when the sermon is breathing the spirit of peace, or pounding the unoffending pulpit until the exhibition of physical vigor makes a deeper impression than the unfolding of the spiritual idea. Some men get more dust out of the pulpit cushion than light out of the text. The legs may prove recreant to their trust. They may bend at the knee at every downward gesture of the arm, or one leg may run away from the other and lounge about in slovenly attitudes. The very toes may behave unseemly, lifting the preacher up and down, increasing and shortening his stature, giving the congregation the impression of a man unstable in all his ways. As there are kickers in the pews, so there are men who kick in the pulpit. To some ministers the most effective of all exclamation points are those made by the boot. But no matter what absurdities and crudities a minister's body may be guilty of, these can be endured providing the good man can manage his mouth. Whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from troubles, and also saves his congregation from a multitude of woes. If a man clears his throat at the end of every fifth sentence, there will be persons in his congregation who will want to clear it out of the pulpit altogether. 
If he hems and haws whenever an idea gets away from him, he irritates both his throat and the nerves of his people. If he yells at the top of his voice in the utterance of feeble ideas, he is a nuisance which ought to be abated. When finely organized Christian men and women cannot attend church without receiving a headache from the stentorian tones of the preacher, it would seem that yelling, like other forms of sin, ought to be made a cause for church discipline. If a congregation were a colossus to be attacked by rhetorical bludgeons, or a mammoth baby to be tickled by vocal pyrotechnics, or a monster to be tricked and trapped by oratorical devices, yelling might not be without justification. But as a congregation is nothing but a big, sensible man waiting to be spoken to by a little man in the pulpit, anything in the nature of a howl from his lips is as vulgar as it is absurd. But a yell is scarcely worse than a tone. A tone is a clerical whine, a pulpit twang, an oily, sanctimonious vocal monstrosity. A tone is cant vocalized. It is affectation coined into breath. It is the most disgusting sound which the universe emits. It is better that a minister should be afflicted with a yellow fever than with a tone. With a yellow fever he might die. Some ministers have several tones, one for the prayer, one for the scripture, one for the sermon, and still another for the religious conversation. They talk like Mr. Hyde in the pulpit, and Dr. Jekyll at the foot of the pulpit stairs. Oh, for a looking-glass for the voice! This has been the cry through the centuries, and in the fullness of time there came the phonograph. What part in the evolution of the clergy this little instrument shall play is too early to declare. But the courage and fidelity of the phonograph prove that it is an angel of the Lord. Before its arrival no preacher could hear himself as others heard him. This metallic angel insists on telling the whole truth without the suppression of a vocal jot or tittle. If the minister smacks his lips at the end of paragraphs, especially delicious, if he clips his ings or hisses his s's, if he smothers his vowels or magnifies his consonants, if he meters his sentences or builds a sing-song into his climaxes, the faithful phonograph will tell the round, unvarnished story, and it will tell it without apology or compunction. The story may bring bitter tears, but if they lead unto repentance, the world will find another man willing to preach the gospel in the tones in which men are born. Probably no defect of public speech is so common and so difficult to cure as the habit of monotony. There is a monotony of pitch, another of force, another of rate, another of inflection, another of emphasis, another of cadence, and the speaker who is not in any way monotonous is one man picked out of ten thousand. To Hercules undying honor has been given because he accomplished twelve stupendous labors. But the minister who can meet and conquer all the lions, boars, and hydras which infest the road which leads to effective speaking is a mightier hero than the laurel demagogue of Greece. End of chapter 21